Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Beck Coulter and our new producer, Dr. Lauren Lettingham. Lauren, say hi. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. We uh, had such a great episode. Our guest tonight, Dr. Anna Camp, to discuss evaluation of stable arrhythmia in the outpatient setting. Before we dive into that content, though, Beck, can you remind us about our show? Sure thing, Justin. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Anna Camp. Dr. Camp is a pediatric electrophysiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She is MedPeds trained and focuses her research on arrhythmias and congenital heart disease, a true MedPeds special. She is here today to teach us about asymptomatic and symptomatic arrhythmias in children, what to order before placing a referral to cardiology, and whether we should be relying on wearable watches for accurate rhythm data. My heart is racing to get started. I'm so excited. Let's go. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Um, Dr. Camp. We're so excited to have you here. Um, First of all, just because we're a bit of an informal group, I would like to just ask if it's okay if I call you by your first name. Oh, absolutely. Most certainly. Thank you. Is it Anna? It's Anna, Anna, actually. Anna. Anna. Yes. I'm so glad I asked. Yes. And in fact, when I was training, um, we were all on a first name basis where I did my fellowship. And if you got called Dr. Camp, it was because you were in trouble and you had done something wrong. So (laughs) I I will not call you that. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not in trouble. Um, But um, Anna, do you mind um, like introducing yourself to our audience? A little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Anna Camp. I am trained as a pediatric um, electrophysiologist, and I specialize in adults with congenital heart disease and arrhythmias. Amazing. Amazing. That's so exciting. I am actually just doing my first ever pediatric cardiology rotation started today, and I could not believe how lucky I am to get to meet you. You will Um, love it. MedPeds people are perfect for cardiology, so think about it. (laughs) Okay. Noted. Noted. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to ask to know you question. We read a lot of books among the group. We share book ideas. We have um, we we don't have a cash like book club, but we should start one. Do you have a book or piece of media or anything that you've consumed lately that you think other physicians or trainees should uh, check out? Yeah. So I will, I guess the caveat to that question is I am a busy working mom. So I am not somebody who reads passionately on a regular basis. However, I will say a book that I have read repeatedly that I think is really important for um, women in medicine is I Know How She Does That or I Know How She Does It by Laura Vanderkam. And it's basically a book about how highly successful professional women optimize their work-life balance and how they get more time. And, And I actually read that about once a year. I think every time I read it, it helps me learn new ways to be a more efficient physician and have more time with my family. And I would say to you, I even had my husband read it. So he knew kind of what I was trying to accomplish. So I think it's really not just for women, but for 
working professionals um, trying to have a good work-life balance, which I think we're all trying to do now. So I read that once a year. And then actually monthly, I read um, National Geographic and Food and Wine. So just magazines that come to my home, but National Geographic is like very dense, lots of info in there. So it doesn't count as a book, but um, you learn a lot from it. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yes. Um, what was the most exciting recent National Geographic article that you read? So one that I read probably six months ago really stuck with me, but it's all about global warming and the effect it's having on forests and trees and how just a five-degree temperature difference affects trees and how they get nutrients and water and stuff. And so I thought it was absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe it. And the details in it were spectacular. So that one I thought was really good. Most recently, I read about two months ago about King Tut's tomb. So that was also very interesting. Amazing. So every month you'll find something new in there. <laughs> I, If I may, the, uh, if I were to have a book recommendation this month, it's a book called Why Fish Don't Exist. And I only bring it up <laughs> because it actually, I think, has a lot of that science, National Geographic style, but is or content, but is, it's great. I'll show... The fun fact is that fish don't exist, and people can look that up, but but fish don't exist anymore. I'm not going to go into more detail, but it, it's a fascinating fun fact. <laughs> Leaving us with a cliffhanger I know, a little cliffhanger. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying not to go and try to Google it right now to exist. I'll wait till, I'll wait till after the episode. But I guess our last sort of get to know you question, and this can sometimes be a challenging question for people, but what is a mistake that you've made that you feel that you've learned the most from? Because part of the learning process is making mistakes. And so we all have plenty of mistakes along the way, but the most important thing is that we take something from them and grow from them. Yeah, that is a tough one. Um, Gosh, I would say... um... I think it has to be confidence. You know, you have to really go with your your gut. And I think having the confidence and going with your gut, but at the same time, recognizing and knowing what you don't know um, and the limitations. And I think that that's with patient care decisions. You know, there are decisions you make that are going to be life and death decisions. And then there's some that it's okay if you're wrong, you know. Um, but I think it's so important to recognize, um, to know what you don't know, basically, um, but be confident when you do. Does that, I don't know. That's not a very good answer. I love that actually. Cause <laughs> I, I think sometimes people talk about confidence as like, oh, I want to pretend that I like know things. Right. But confidence can be like listening to yourself, checking that, like, I don't know what's going on with this patient, but I feel worried about them. Yes. Or, yes. or I, I don't know what's happening here, but I, something's telling me um, yes. that, that the, something's not right. And, and being able to kind of like listen to that and, and being confident in your own and your knowledge or what you don't know, like you said. I think mm-hmm. that's really helpful advice for, honestly, all of us, every level. Absolutely. And knowing when to bring in a specialist, which actually kind of segues really nicely into our episode. Sort of you're in the outpatient setting and you have this patient you don't quite know what to do with. How can you consult someone who does? Lauren, what a segue. Yeah. You want to want to bring us into the to our first case from Cashlec? That sounds great. So we have a young gentleman, Mr. A.V. Block. He is a 12-year-old, previously healthy kid who was at football practice the other day when his brand new Apple Watch said that he was in AFib. He was otherwise asymptomatic at the time and so decided to finish practice. But when he went home and told his mom about it, she was so concerned that she, of course, scheduled an appointment with his PCP for further evaluation. You are his PCP, um, and you notice right away when walking into the room, he's a well-appearing active kid. 
So we'll start really broad. Um, our first question is, what are some of the most common arrhythmias that you see in children? And what are some of the can't miss arrhythmias to tie in with that? Yeah, so that's a really big question. I think the most common arrhythmias that we see in children, we'll start with that, but it really varies significantly by age, you know. So if you have a neonate PACs, premature atrial contractions, or PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, very, very common in the neonatal period. And so it's very likely that we see those in the NICU or the nursery, and those are very likely to kind of suppress on their own and go away with time, usually very quickly. If you get into the older child, you know, the five to eight-year-old, I would say sinus arrhythmia, we see very, very commonly, and you can hear it. It can be very profound. It's a normal rhythm. It's not really an arrhythmia, but it's really, I think, can be very impressive in that age range. And then in the older, you know, children and teenagers, if we're talking about kind of true arrhythmias, then I would say SVT is probably the most common arrhythmia that we see. It has an incidence of about one in 250 kids, but also PAC and PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, that may be frequent, but oftentimes patients are very asymptomatic with them. I guess the second part of your question, what are the can't miss? So I think that the can't miss, obviously, are the ones that are dangerous. We just don't want to make sure we don't miss them, right? And so I think that that's probably a little bit of a, a bigger question based on the age range. You know, in the neonates, We don't want to miss SVT because it's a baby who can't tell us when they're having symptoms. And so when we all kind of think of SVT as being a very benign arrhythmia, but the truth is a child who doesn't know they're in it, um, if a child sits in SVT for a prolonged period of time, you know, days to weeks, they can present with severe um, cardiac dysfunction. And that can be a life-threatening arrhythmia that we would never consider that a life-threatening arrhythmia in a normal 12-year-old who can say, mom, I'm having palpitations, you know. So I think it really is very different. And then for the older children, you know, what you don't want to miss is anything that could be potentially life-threatening, which is like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And I I love the differentiation between what is dangerous based on age, right? Um, Because of the sort of the developmental stage of the of the kid or the baby, um, they're going to present differently and they may or may not have symptoms and, and things like yeah. that. And I also, I didn't mention this earlier, but I think it's important to think about a child with a structurally normal heart with normal function and a child who has had repaired congenital heart disease, because that opens a whole nother can of worms, you know? Um, and so patients who've had repaired uh, heart disease can have different arrhythmia risks based on their lesion and their type of repair. And so I guess in terms of thinking about sort of the broad, like, trying to sort of start from scratch. I mean, probably you know this patient a little bit, right? If they're, uh, you're the PCP, but what questions should we be asking to risk stratify um, these patients and sort of getting to think what could be dangerous, what is more maybe benign or sort of not even necessarily an arrhythmia per se? Yeah, yeah. So I think really the first thing is symptoms. And it sounds like for this um, case example, the patient didn't have any symptoms. It was his watch telling him he was in the arrhythmia. So I think symptoms, number one, is the first thing. And exertional symptoms, I think are worrisome. Specifically, exertional syncope is a huge red flag, and that really does require um, a careful evaluation and really a more urgent one. So if you're a general practitioner in the community, that's the one you make a phone call about. You don't put in the you know general referral that might sit and the patient might get in in one to two months. So I think exertional symptoms are significant. 
especially exertional syncope. Um, you know, with SVT, our most common um, arrhythmia in uh, kids and teenagers with structurally normal hearts, they oftentimes tolerate it really very well. They may complain of palpitations, maybe some, some shortness of breath or some dizziness. But typical SVT in um, a child with a structurally normal heart, normal function, we don't pass out with it. Um, and so I do think that symptoms of palpitations associated with syncope, whether it's exertional or at, at rest, would be very worrisome. So I think if I haven't said it enough, symptoms of palpitations and syncope is a big red flag. And as a follow-up to that, can I ask, are there questions that, are you asking about triggers? You know, are there certain things that bring them on? Timing is something that is a persistent symptom, like a persistent palpitation versus intermittent before a bid test or something. You know, are, are those some of the questions that can help elucidate if this is a red flag or really yes or no palpitation, exertional shortness of breath? We've kind of moved on in the flow sheet. I think some of the timing questions you asked about really tell me how easily am I going to be able to document any mm. type of arrhythmia, right? Because if it's a patient who has had one symptom, you know, two months ago and hasn't had anything, then you kind of think about what are the diagnostic tools that we use to diagnose arrhythmias, the EKG. If their EKG is normal and they are not currently having symptoms, you're not going to see that. There are 24-hour holters, and that records every single heartbeat that you have for a 24-hour period of time. So if they go 24 hours and don't have a symptom, that doesn't help you. We have 14-day holters, which record every single heartbeat for a two-week period. And then we have 30-day event monitors. But beyond that, in the medical field, we really don't have a lot of long-term monitoring other than an implantable monitor, which would be implanted under the skin to monitor for events. And that has about battery life of about three years. So to answer your question, when I'm talking about or thinking about the frequency of symptoms, it's more how am I going to document this? When I think about the triggers, that does, I think, help determine a little bit what the arrhythmia could be sometimes, you know, but, but some of our arrhythmias occur with exercise. But People who are deconditioned have palpitations when they exercise, you know, or I think these high school kids really get worked very hard by their coaches. And so when you're pushed just beyond your comfort level, even just kind of normal sinus tachycardia may feel uncomfortable in some of those situations. So um, I think at the risk of babbling a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of documenting what we have in the medical community to document arrhythmias is somewhat limited if the symptoms are not very frequent. And so I think your case introduced really what a lot of us are seeing in the medical field now, which is the patient wearables, right? And so the Apple Watch was not designed for 15-year-old football players. I think he was 15 in the scenario. It was designed for older people with AFib to tell them that they were in AFib so that they could minimize risk of stroke. And so the algorithms are not tested and are not useful in our young population. However, the Apple Watches that have ECG capabilities are very useful. And I would say nine times out of 10, I get a teenager in my office who has palpitations, who's wearing an Apple Watch. And I say, can it record an EKG? And they don't know. They know they can text all their friends with it and they can get their emails, right? But they don't know if it can record um, an EKG. And so I tell them how to do that. And and um, there's other patient wearables, also patient um, monitoring devices that are much cheaper than Apple Watches that I think parents and patients are using a lot more now than they did even five years ago. So I think there's a lot of ways to try to kind of document the arrhythmias. Got it. Got it. And so in terms of the sort of the 
back to kind of the history, you know, it sounds like um, symptoms and then sort of triggers. Are there other questions based on the, the patient's history that you would want to maybe elucidate, you know, aside from, you know, history of repaired structural heart disease, which hopefully, you know, like I said, we know about? Yeah. So um, when I see a patient for the first time in clinic with palpitations or a concern for arrhythmia, that my whole HPI is what how often do your symptoms occur? What do they feel like? How long do they last? Is there a trigger? Do they happen when you're at rest? Do they happen when you're active or both? And do you have any associated dizziness or syncope with them? And so that will get me kind of the red flags from just their personal history. How long has this been going on? For some kids, they're like, you know, I've really had this for six or eight years. It's just becoming more frequent, you know? And that I think raises my eyebrows that, wait, if this is something that's been going on and getting more frequent, that probably is... um, um, something, you know, could be something real. From their personal history then, um, in terms of any medical problems that they could have, if they don't have repaired um, heart disease, but do they have any electrolyte abnormalities, um, even things like diabetes can set you up for electrolyte abnormalities or acid-based disturbances, and we see arrhythmias in that. So, so certainly could be that as well that you think about for their personal history? Is there anything that would they have that would be associated with arrhythmias? And then the family history, obviously. Any first-degree family member who has a known cardiac diagnosis. Now, a lot of times you ask this and you hear about great-grandma who had, you know, a heart attack. And, and as a pediatric cardiologist, great-grandma doesn't interest me as much for the patient's risk, though it, it is important, you know, in taking a thorough history. But if dad has a known cardiomyopathy um, and dad's brother died from a cardiomyopathy, then you really have first degree family members and you've got a history there that I think you're going to pay more attention to and certainly evaluate. So the family history of just anybody with cardiac diagnoses, especially in first degree family members. And then I think as cardiologists, we probably are a little bit more specific on our family history in terms of causes of death. So, you know, I don't say has anybody died of um, a cardiac reason. Instead, it's has anybody died as a driver in a, in a single automobile accident? You know, you think about what could cause somebody to drive a car into a tree. It certainly, you know, could be an arrhythmia. Any unexplained drownings, things like that. Anybody who's had a crib death in the family or a lot of miscarriages. So those can all go along with arrhythmias. And then the social history, you know, there are so many herbal medications and over-the-counter supplements, as well as really medicinal marijuana, all of which can be associated with arrhythmias. So I've been really surprised in the last five years, I've started asking more about medicinal marijuana, which has a very strong association and documentation of tachyarrhythmias. And it is amazing how many people, you know, have some some access or do some medicinal marijuana or, or recreational. But the point is that it can have a very strong um, arrhythmia association as well. So I think that's gone through all of the questions I would ask in clinic. <laughs> that's so helpful. That is I, fabulous. I did not know that about I know you always think about marijuana, it's going to chill everybody out and they're going to get slow heart rates. No, no. Yeah. Especially in some of the teenage uh, teenagers, you, they don't necessarily think about the risks of the, all of these recreational things. So adding that to the list of things we can kind of use to say, this is another reason why you shouldn't do that is, is really good to know. And one that may be a little bit more immediate. Awesome. But we've kind of, so we've gone through the history. Now we've gotten to the physical exam. What are some of the physical exam components that you always do in these patients? And what are the, if there are any red flags in the physical exam, um, what would those be? Yeah, so I think just from the vitals, you know, which are um, done by our nurses in clinic, a resting heart rate, um, 
and a blood pressure. And I think it's really important to do a right arm blood pressure. And the reason for that is, um, honestly, from a, co- from a congenital standpoint, you want to make sure you're not missing a coarctation. And everybody thinks, oh, a 12-year-old will never have a coarctation. We do see them. And so um, I think really when you think about your clinical practice and how the patients get triaged, are they getting a right arm or a left arm blood pressure? Because if they're getting a left arm blood pressure, you're really not assessing for coarct. And so um, so uh, Tachycardia, or a heart rate and a right arm blood pressure are the main vitals that we take. In cardiology clinic, a new patient also gets a pulse ox, but I don't think that that's something that's t- uh, commonly done in the general clinic, which is fine. And then on exam, from a cardiac standpoint, it's really focusing, I think, on a murmur evaluation and pulses, but it's really a murmur evaluation from a cardiac standpoint. And for me, as an electrophysiologist, I got to be honest, none of my patients have murmurs. They all have arrhythmias. So I hone in on the EKG before I see anything else, right? And so if you're evaluating a patient with palpitations, I'm not sure as a new patient that there's any reason you would not get an EKG. So in terms of like moving just right from the exam to testing, I think that's something that even somebody in a general clinic, even in a more rural area would still be able to get for their patient. And so I would I would certainly do that for any symptoms of palpitations. And I think, you know, with the mental health crises that we have going on in our country right now, I feel that a lot of teenage, or I feel like I see a lot of teenagers who have tachycardia and they are told they're anxious. And so I think that um, I would add, even with somebody who has a diagnosis of anxiety or may seem to have a new diagnosis of anxiety, if their resting heart rate isn't normal, I would certainly recommend an EKG. I've certainly had a handful of patients patients who've been diagnosed with anxiety for years. And by the time they came to me, they'd never had an EKG and they had an arrhythmia that was treatable with an ablation, right? And so we ablated and their anxiety went away. And so it wasn't that obviously we treated their anxiety. It's just their tachycardia wasn't related to anxiety, which is obviously very common right now. But I think I would just use a plug for make sure we've excluded, you know, some arrhythmias too. I love like there's three major points in there that I, I really love. One, the idea that the arrhythmia can cause the anxiety, because I think we do often attribute things to anxiety, which is frequent, but but recognizing that there might be an underlying cause. Two, the inclusion of the EKG as part of the physical exam for an arrhythmia, I think is is just a, a great way to kind of prioritize like this is really something that's important. But one of the things too that I um you mentioned if the person is being evaluated for an arrhythmia, the murmur uh, the valvular exam is less pertinent. And I feel like that's something that even at a, a residency level is kind of forgotten. You think, oh, cardiac uh, chief complaint, cardiac exam. And so everyone's like very, you know, they're spending six minutes trying to catch that murmur in someone that comes in with palpitations. And I think, you know, knowing what the pretest probability of any diagnostic physical exam maneuver, it's an important part of of how you approach the physical exam. And so I think those are those are all very, very helpful pearls that are, are great takeaways. And I guess, you know, I, I think we've kind of gone over this, you know, I guess in terms of any red flags in the history and physical that would warrant referral to cardiology even before any kind of further testing is is conducted. I really appreciated you said sort of the the syncope, you know, collapse is a is an urgent phone call. Um and EKG is part of our, you know, workup um, that we can definitely do in, in our MedPeds clinic at Cashlack. Um, but is there anything else that, you know, um, 
that would just say like warrant like um, kind of like a more uh, like uh, urgent referral to cardiology from your perspective? Yeah. So I think we talked about, you know, benign arrhythmias do not cause syncope. So I think that's the one thing to keep in mind. And I think the other thing is if you feel like you're, if you're concerned enough that you feel you're questioning exercise restrictions, I always tell my, um, the residents, if you think you need to restrict, then you need to make a phone call because I think you may need to restrict, but then we need to see the patient sooner. And and in most institutions, exercise restriction is really considered an urgent need for an evaluation. You know, it's like a murmur in a two-week-old or something. So so we get them in quickly. So I think those are the things that if you're concerned, there's something you don't like. The family history, I think, will play a role. If you've got multiple, you know, if you've got a worrisome, worrisome family history, I think I mentioned, you know, dad has a cardiomyopathy and dad's uncle died and the patient has symptoms. You might be concerned and say, I think I want to restrict. I'm not comfortable as a general practitioner signing your sports clearance form until you're cleared. I think those are things. But but I think a lot of it, um, exertional symptoms um, and uh, syncope are probably the main ones. Now, you know, I think it's tough because obviously vasovagal syncope is, <laughs> is very common, right? But I think you, a good practitioner, can really tease that out too to say, I think this is just classic vasovagal um, and, uh, and maybe you're not concerned about that and I think that's fine. Um, so I think that the traditional practitioner sees way more vasovagal syncope than I think a cardiologist does. It's more when they're not sure the symptoms maybe aren't quite consistent or that just the standard therapies aren't working that they get sent more to cardiology. So, Should I maybe ask, I think this is a, a little bit of a basic physiology question, but I think important to discuss. You mentioned, you know, exercise restrictions if you're concerned. Can you talk a little bit about why you might be worried about someone exercising and why that exertion, you know, what you're concerned about? Is it just that the heart is beating so fast in SVT that you're not able to perfuse and you might have another syncopal episode? Is it with some arrhythmias you're more likely to have cardiac arrest? Are there other things, you know, can you talk about why why would we restrict it? So, exactly. so I think, first of all, I think, you know, SVT really, I would consider in a child with a structurally normal heart with normal function, SVT typically is very well tolerated and would not cause syncope. And so, so if you have an arrhythmia, if the story is my heart started racing and then I face planted, you know, in my um, dinner, that's very unusual, very, very atypical, very unusual. And there's something weird, you know, people do not um, help healthy children do not pass out just sitting there. So I think passing out at rest like that, passing out with syncope, and I think you asked about, you know, what would cause me to exercise restrict. So for me, um, I obviously have the luxury of doing a thorough evaluation, but if there are exertional symptoms, if somebody's running track and goes down, you know, crosses the finish line and goes down, that needs um, an evaluation before they're cleared to run again. And, and, you know, very commonly, we see athletes who've just, um, they've gone all day at school, they don't like breakfast, they don't like the lunch at school, and then they go to track practice, and they've had literally nothing to eat or drink all day. But I think you pass out when you're running, and we've got to evaluate that and take that seriously. And so it's very easy to say, oh, they didn't have anything to eat or drink all day. It's true, they didn't. But you want to make sure they didn't have an arrhythmia, right, related to exercise. So it's really more catechol-driven arrhythmias that could be more malignant. That makes a lot of sense. And so bringing it back to our case, we've finished the history and physical. Um, and in the case of AV Block, his EKG showed sinus bradycardia and sinus arrhythmia. 
his mom is still very concerned, understandably so. And she said that she just read about the athlete that went into cardiac arrest during the game and is very worried that this may happen to her son. So we kind of talked about red flags to watch out for. How do you explain these to families? How do you counsel these families if thus far we haven't come across these per se in our patients and there and we want to send them out of the clinic? Yeah, I think that's tough, you know, because I think nerves and anxiety can drive a lot with the worried well population, right? And so I think the way I um, kind of discuss things with the family is if we have a history that's not worrisome and our family history is not worrisome and our exam and EKG are normal, the chances of this being anything life-threatening is very, very low. Now, on the flip side of that, I have kids who have had a cardiac arrest, um, you know, with exercise. And so they've already had a cardiac arrest. And then I have the opportunity to evaluate what caused this. And we have EKGs, echoes, cardiac MRIs, exercise tests, EP studies, whole genome testing, and we don't have an answer. So there are going to still be kids who um, have arrhythmias despite a very thorough evaluation that we can never um, understand, or at least at this point. So I think it's really about being cautious if symptoms change, but also really it's more community-based. And I think that there are a lot of states that are very progressive, have AEDs in schools and have very um, progressive social education for schools and stuff like that. And when you think about think about that, it's really making sure that we all are um, taking care of each other. And um, if my student is sick, if my student's not feeling well, if my student's just had a really really bad cold or a really bad viral symptom with seven days of fevers that's really bad, they can't just go back to sports. You know, they need to kind of be seen. So I think I got a little off topic there on <laughs> on the sudden death, but I think really the incidence of sudden death in young athletes is really, really low. And in probably, um, you know, in different international studies, it's probably one to two per 100,000 patient years in young people. So so it's very rare. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's just that it's so, it just gets, you know, um, it makes the news. So people hear about it every time it happens. And so um, I think it's really important to take a good history and not skimp on the sports clearance, you know, physical exam, um, but then to have um, school schools that are heart safe um, and have AEDs and people who are trained to use them. Awesome. And just to sort of bring it back to, I guess, what would you tell this mom to watch out for at home? Yeah. So passing out, um, making sure that he's playing well and feeling good. And I always tell athletes, look, if you're not feeling good, take it easy. You got to take the day off. To tell mom, it's that if if there's no worrisome history, we have a normal EKG, and we have nothing else that we're concerned about, that this is all very reassuring. And I and I think that um, there's not really, I wouldn't do a, a lot more testing if there's not anything indicated. And then one of the questions, we're, we're, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the normal um, findings, but if when you have an EKG, when or when I have an EKG in the primary care office, can you talk about maybe what we're looking for that is abnormal? And not to do a, a two question and one question, but I'm going to do it. Um, if if the EKG is normal, when you still might want to pull the trigger and do 
some type of Holter monitor or something else. But what, what are you looking for, for for arrhythmias in an EKG specifically? Yeah. So I think I might kind of back up first and say, you know, if you're in your practice ordering the EKG, who's reading it? And so I think you want to know who's reading it. If you are a general pe- general pediatrician and you have adult cardiologists reading your EKG, there may be some over or under reads, you know. So I think it's really important to know who's reading your EKG. There's good data that EKGs are more accurately read by a pediatric cardiologist than by um, an internist. And then there's da- that same data also shows that a pediatric electrophysiologist reading the EKG is more accurate. However, there's not that many of us. So I think it is important to know, number one, who's reading it. And then number two, if I have a patient who's symptomatic with palpitations, what am I looking for? Well, the easy one usually is WPW, right? So Wolf Parkinson White is... Um, an abnormal electrical pathway in the heart that can cause different types of arrhythmias. About one in 500 kids will have it, and it's usually pretty easy to spot on the EKG. The pattern of the pathway on the EKG is really dependent on where the pathway is located in the heart. So if you have a pathway very close to the sinus node, then you have a sinus beat that gets to the pathway first before the AV node. You might be very maximally pre-excited as um, compared to a pathway on the left side of the heart where it's got a longer distance to travel and very minimally pre-excited. And those can be missed, those ones that have minimal pre-excitation. It doesn't mean they can be any less... have any less arrhythmia arrhythmia risk, they just may sometimes be harder to tell on EKG. But I think with symptoms of palpitations, it's, you know, do they have WPW? But then the other thing that I look for really on the EKG is, you know, you could have a child with an undiagnosed cardiomyopathy who's having PVCs or non-sustained arrhythmias. And typically, um, we will say that in patients with a cardiomyopathy, the EKG often precedes the echo. And so the big thing that we tell our um, fellows is to really pay attention to the QRS and the T-wave morphology. So inverted T-waves in the limb leads is not normal. It's not normal at any age. And so I think that one of the challenges for um, pediatric residents and cardiology fellows uh, reading EKGs is that what is normal changes by age. But the one thing that doesn't change is that the T-waves really should not be inverted. And so when you see inverted T waves in the limb leads, you really have to think about um, uh, myocardial disease. And so we typically say that um, if you have abnormal um, depolarization, you will have abnormal repolarization. So if for some reason the myocardium isn't normal, it often will cause your uh, repolarization to be abnormal as well. I think I went way off on a tangent on that. No, but this is great. And a great opportunity to to shout out to two of our episodes that we have done. One, episode 88, which is looking at the pediatric EKG and um, episode 37, which does kind of take a deeper dive into SVT. So um, these are great kind of connections to those. Yeah, thank you. And I guess uh, maybe just a follow up of like, what are you looking for on EKG is what are um, what are your thoughts on using screening EKGs to identify potentially fatal arrhythmias prior to participation in competitive sports, which I guess is also then 
goes back to the question of who's reading the EKG. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I expect that this will end with you saying you'll read all of my patients <laughs> forever. <laughs> Free pass, correct? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to commit to that. But, um, yeah. no, but one thing I would say to the general practitioner is I definitely would know who your contacts are. Like, who are you going to call? Who is your friend? When you need to phone a friend, who is it? You know, one of my first jobs out of fellowship was in a, um, a small academic center with a very um, far-reaching rural population. And the patients couldn't come three and four and six hours to just have me see them. And so I would get phone calls daily from the general practitioners in rural communities with, hey, I saw this, I'm worried. Should I be worried? What would you do? And so I think that that is one thing, which is know who your resources are, because we certainly all phone our friends. Um, And then your question, though, about the screening EKGs is a loaded question, Beck. (laughs) I think it it depends on a lot. You know, I think that it really... there's a lot of things that go into it. One is who is reading it. So there are a lot of companies that are out there for monetary gain that it's a quick EKG, here's $100 and we'll diagnose. And and I think parents feel very comforted knowing that their child has had a normal EKG. But there are, I would say, the majority of the children and adolescents that I've taken care of who've had resuscitated cardiac events have normal EKGs, you know? And then, so it doesn't exclude every potential cause of um, sudden cardiac death. Then on the flip side, I think is how many EKGs end up prompting a question for further evaluation? And really what is the, the cost benefit? How many EKGs do you have to do in normal teenagers to save, you know, to identify one true cardiac disease? And so I think that's the other um, part of it is who's reading the EKG and what warrants. You know, we see a lot of abnormal EKGs in our clinic um, that then prompt an echo or a Holter or another EKG or an exercise test, or I don't know why that EKG was abnormal. This one is normal. So let me see you back in six months and we'll, you know, take the best of three kind of thing. <laughs> so so I think that's another um Another thing to think about is that the EKGs really are very malleable. You know, if you do an EKG at 8 a.m., it's different than an EKG at 5 p.m. after track practice. It's different than three months later. There really is not, uh, it's something that can change. And I think the lead placement is so um, particular, especially the precordial lead placement. So we use the chest leads, right, to assess for ventricular hypertrophy. Well, if there's somebody who um, hasn't been well-trained on where to place them and the chest leads are not placed in the appropriate location, then you can get false um, false LVH, basically. And then you're going down, a, oh gosh, do I have a hypertroph on my hands and need to evaluate this? And it's all just been lead placement. So I think that the screening EKGs, in my opinion, probably cause more problems than they solve, but identifying the symptoms and a good history is probably much more useful than an EKG. That makes a lot of sense um, for all of the reasons that you described. Super helpful so, uh, so, and some amount of potentially false reassurance um, uh, and, and, and not contextualized information. And then I guess in terms of in, ter- in that terms of that question, are there things that we could see on an EKG in athletes that may sort of pop up on the automatic read as abnormal, but are in fact completely normal? Or I would even say not necessarily on the automatic read, but I think even things like the the J point elevations and sinus arrhythmias we talked about a little bit. But um, yeah, so I think that um, 
you know, sinus arrhythmia, but also sinus bradycardia. I mean, you know, those, you guys know the high school athletes, those well-trained high school and college athletes, a resting heart rate of 40 is no big deal. And so if somebody's bradycardic and somebody orders an EKG and it's sinus bradycardia and they're asymptomatic, I would argue you're done, right? Like, but sometimes that heart rate of 40 is um, very worrisome to people. And so you, I think that that often is something that we get referred that is not as big of a deal in an, an athlete, um, especially if they're asymptomatic. I think we can see some ventricular hypertrophy in, you know, well-trained athletes. So um, an athlete's heart can be mildly um, hypertrophic and also mildly dilated. We see that very commonly. And so to have some voltage abnormalities, especially on our really thin and tall, you know, runners, you just think about that body habitus. If, if those precordial leads are not placed right, even if they are placed right, you may still have some that meet voltage criteria, but otherwise are normal. And so that you just may not, you know, that may take a little bit of an evaluation to to um, sort that out. But I think it's really, I would say the sinus bradycardia is the one we see most commonly that is not something to worry about. I think anything, a QT abnormality, um, a QRS prolongation, any sort of AV block, um, even first degree AV block or um, voltage criteria for ventricular hypertrophy, I think those probably have to be evaluated. But it's the sinus bradycardia and an asymptomatic athlete that I think is one you say, I'm not worried about this. That was really helpful, actually. Okay. So we have our EKG. We sort of, something's a little weird. We don't fully know what to do with it. We do decide to refer them to cardiology based on some of the things that we've just discussed. Other than the EKG, is there anything else that you like the outpatient general practitioner to order before sending them to cardiology to see you? No, I don't think so. You know, I think the Holters, we certainly get patients who've had Holters elsewhere. And as the electrophysiologist, I don't care what somebody else read it as. I want to see all the tracings, you know. So so if there's something abnormal, I want to see it. Um, and I also think a normal Holter in somebody who has palpitations every four months doesn't necessarily help me. So I don't think necessarily ordering a Holter. I'm trying to think um, of when you would want to, but it may actually delay, you know, your care. If you order the Holter and you wait to get it back because when you think about a Holter, you're placing it on somebody or they're getting it placed somewhere. It's an ambulatory monitor and then they have to mail it back. And so you're dependent on the U.S. postal system and somebody getting to a, a post office or FedEx or UPS to actually do it. And so I can't tell you the number of Holters we have that are, they sit on somebody's couch for two weeks, three weeks, you know. So, so, um, I think that it might just be faster if it's decided in the cardiology office. So I really think it's just the EKG. Having somebody come in with an EKG is very helpful. Beyond that, I don't think I need as much. Maybe for a patient like this, and, and let's make it even a little bit more complicated where AV block you know, had the, the reading of AFib, but does have some occasional symptomatic palpitations every couple of months, you know, something where we don't feel confident that we're capturing it on the, the EKG that, that's... Yeah. Relatively normal, but we misread it because he's thin. It looked really big. His heart was going fast, but then it was slow. We were just we just felt overwhelmed. When we send this patient to you, what's your first clinic visit like? What are the things that you're doing? I mean, maybe it's the same we've already talked about, but what what's once they're officially referred to the black box that is cardiology? 
Uh, what what are you going to be be doing for this patient at the higher level? Yeah, so as an electrophysiologist, I have tunnel vision. You know, do they have an arrhythmia or not? So I have an EKG done before I ever see the patient, and I, <laughs> um, you know, will look at that and have an idea that that's either normal or not normal. But I think that um, you know, others are certainly going to start with the vitals, normal blood pressure, as well as um, the history and physical. And we've already talked about like these are the key points of a of um, a history and what will raise my eyebrows that will make me want to do more or ask more. And I, I think really what you're getting at is I have a kid, he maybe has some intermittent symptoms, but I've gone through the history. He doesn't pass out with them. He feels some palpitations. They don't limit his um, exertional tolerance. He doesn't, you know, feel um, near syncopal they go away on their own with just a few minutes and they happen once every three months. So I would say to you, it's a recurrent symptom and it's episodic. I really, um, I do think that the ones that are episodic like that, there's probably something there that should be recorded. Now, maybe it's just PVCs after he's had a couple Mountain Dews or, or Red Bulls. But I think when they're episodic like that, it's it's tells you that there's something repetitive there that we should evaluate. Um, and then uh, I think the question is how you do it. You know, and if it's every three months, there's not really going to be... Um, a good monitor that could be ordered by you or by me, really. Um, and so if he's got that Apple Watch, you might say, hey, let's refer you to cardiology. In the meantime, if and when you have another episode, why don't you use your watch to record the EKG? Then I think that's both cost effective and you're getting him in. And I think the question is always when you're referring, is it something that I need to restrict from? And again, if you're not sure because you're um, newly practicing on your own and you don't have you know, your clinic preceptor to ask, I think a phone call is very reasonable. If you think, should I, you know, restrict this person? Our institution is set up where an outside physician can call through the institution and get a cardiologist on the phone to just ask these types of questions. And so um, I think you find that. But um, but I think that in this situation where he has rare episodes, he's not otherwise symptomatic with them, you've done an EKG that's normal, then getting him referred to evaluate because you've got some repetitive um, episodes there and you, um, I think it's very reasonable to have them evaluated. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, one question I have, and it's kind of based on my first day in cardiology clinic today. I <laughs> uh, should have asked a cardiologist I was working with, but we were really busy. Um, when is an echo warranted in the evaluation of arrhythmia? Um, when do you take that next step? So um, I think there are different indications, and it really um, depends on what type of arrhythmia you have, what the age of the patient is, and um, what the symptoms are. So for example, a neonate who has SVT definitely warrants an echo. There's a very high association with congenital heart disease in neonatal SVT, um, close to 25%. So you are going to get an echo in you know, um, a neonate with SVT. However, an older child doesn't have that same association. And so um, in my clinic, I may have a child with a really good story for SVT, a normal baseline EKG, and SVT documented. And if they have a normal exam, this is when I listen to the patient, if they have a normal exam and their EKG is normal, I'm not pressed to do an echo that visit. I will do an echo before they take them, before I take them for an ablation procedure, but I'm not pressed to do an echo. And this is why I say to the family, 
when you've met your deductible, let me know. We'll do it then, you know, and because there's not a pressing reason. And I think what I feel like I've learned is parents don't question you if they think it's about their child's heart, you know. And so we have to be very thoughtful about the testing that we're ordering, the financial implications that could have on a family and and the cost of them. And even a Holter monitor is not cheap. I mean, most of them are going to bill $1,500. And so for a family that has to pay $10,000 out of pocket before they get any, you know, depending on what their insurance plan is like, the question is, do I really think that Holter is going to help me? And if they have episodes of palpitations every three months, I'm not going to order a Holter because it, it is not cheap and it's probably not going to help me. Now, if they have palpitations and I listen on their exam and they have ectopy and their EKG has PVCs on it, that's a very different story, right? So I think the question of um, when do you order um, an echo depends on what is the arrhythmia that you suspect, um, what do you have documented, and what are the patient's symptoms. If you... Um, have a patient who's had exertional syncope, they are going to get an EKG, I'm going to take their history, and they're going to get an echo, you know, I mean, even if their EKG is stone cold normal. So if a patient has WPW, that also has a high association with congenital heart disease and that can be diagnosed at later um, ages as well. So that patient, um, any patient with WPW is really going to get an echo of any age. I think I kind of went all over the place there on you. <laughs> no, I think these are great. And you mentioned the, the case with the PVCs in a patient that has palpitations and you notice the PVCs on, on EKG. How worried are you in this case? And, and what are the next steps for, for this? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. Thank you. So, you know, we talked at the beginning of the segment about what are some of the more common arrhythmias that you see. And we see um, frequent PVCs very frequently <laughs> um, in kids. And I will say most kids don't feel them. They are picked up because they go for their annual well visit and somebody puts a stethoscope on their chest and they hear ectopy or an irregular heartbeat. And an EKG is done, which demonstrates, you know, PVCs. And so PVCs are a very common benign arrhythmia in children. However, it's also a diagnosis of exclusion. So you could have PVCs because you have a, a myopathic disorder, right? And so with the evaluation of PVCs, I look at the PVCs on the EKG. I look at the morphology of the PVCs. Are there multiple different types of morphologies of PVCs? I mean, they're coming from different places within the myocardium, or is there just one morphology of PVC, meaning it looks like it's just one little irritable group of cells that's firing. And then I look at the rest of the EKG around the PVC. So if if my EKG um, in my sinus beats is abnormal, meaning an abnormal um, repolarization, abnormal T waves, that's really very worrisome. And we think these are PVCs that could be associated with a cardiomyopathy. But with frequent PVCs in adults, there is an association with um, the development of dysfunction. Now, in children, the data that we have for that is actually very sparse. And so in adults, there's some very good studies that structurally normal hearts with normal function have a PVC burden over 25%. So on a 24-hour Holter, you record every single heartbeat and 25% or more of them are PVCs. And in adults, that's been associated with development of cardiac dysfunction. And so really, um, we want to make sure that if we have a high burden of PVCs, we're not developing dysfunction, but it's also what else could be causing PVCs. So certainly cardiomyopathies can do that. Um, arrhythmogen 
neurogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy is one that um, is known to be associated with a lot of ventricular arrhythmias. So when we see kids who have PVCs on their EKG, we want to evaluate to make sure that they are just the benign common PVCs. And then we want to assess the burden of them because that will also affect how we follow up those kids. One other follow-up I wanted to ask, we talked about the wearables and the Apple Watch and counseling the family to, if you're having the palpitation, record the EKG. With some of the new technologies, I know for adults, there's the new portable EKG. I won't say that Mm. specific brand name, but are these things that are being looked at in children or something that if a you know, 16-year-old or a very uh, involved mother of a 16-year-old wanted to look into to doing this? Is this something that you recommend to patients or that patients are using? Yeah, they're actually very good quality. And there's one specific one. It sounds like you don't want us to say branding. I, I, yeah. yeah. I, is there a generic version? I don't know. No, they're not generic. They're all yeah. kind of for profit. We're saying <laughs> Apple. So I guess it's, let's uh, go Alive Core. Is yes, that the? Yes, the yeah. Cardio Mobile yeah. Alive Core, I think is a really nice tool. And the reason I like it is what we just talked about. So first of all, it will give a single lead EKG. And the way it works is it's paired with an app on your smartphone. So you have to have a smartphone. You have to download the app and then you have to buy the um, device. And there are different types of device that CardioMobile was kind of the first one or um, a live core is, is it's also called. Um, and so if you're having a symptomatic event, you take the little device out, you open up the app on your phone and you record a 30 second EKG, single lead EKG. So it works just like the Apple Watch EKG. It records a single lead. The quality of them actually is really very, very good. And you know when I do a Holter monitor or event monitor in my clinic, I'm only getting a single lead EKG. So it's really giving me kind of the same quality of data. The difference is it's only symptom data. So somebody has to have a symptom, pull the thing out and record it for 30 seconds, you know? So if it the event happened at school and they come home and record something, then that doesn't really help, obviously. But what I like about them, Justin, is the cost. I mean, first generation CardioMobile is $80 um, through the website or, you know, through Amazon. And when you consider that compared to a Holter, which is about 50, on average twelve to $1,500 or 30-day event monitor which is typically in excess of $2,000, financially, it's a big difference, you know, and and people own them. So I, gosh, I've stopped counting the number of patients who've come in with their SVT tracings documented on their CardioMobile device because it's so prevalent out there. I think people are using it. And and I'm using it a lot really in the congenital patients um, who need more frequent monitoring for symptoms and stuff. They're really nice. Um, they're nice devices to record an EKG to have documentation of an episode. Now, what they're not good for is the automatic read, right? And so these are all based on these were all developed for the detection of AFib. So your case presentation, he was wearing his Apple Watch and he had AFib documented. And while the different companies, you know, don't tell us what their algorithms are, I assume the algorithms are some type of heart rate variability, irregular heart rate variability, right? That's going to flag AFib. And so um, we talked at the beginning that sinus arrhythmia is very common in the younger kids. And so um, many times a sinus arrhythmia, because it's so irregular, can flag as AFib on this. So if I have families that are using, I say to them, don't really pay attention to the <laughs> to the automatic read. But typically they just give a few automatic reads, like it's AFib, it's normal, it's tacky, or it's unknown. 
And so you don't care what the device thinks you're having. You just want to record a symptom and have your clinician review it. So I actually think they're great quality, very cost effective. You know, I'm sure the billers don't like it because there's not a good way to bill for it. So, um, but I think for patients, it's really useful. Super helpful. I I haven't seen them yet, um, but. And what's really great is when the patient comes to clinic with symptoms and they've already recorded their episode, you know, (laughs) so they've done all the work for us. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. This has been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. To sum it up for our listeners, do you just have two to three main take-home points out of everything that we've discussed tonight? So first of all, thank you for having me. This has been really lovely. Um, But I would say, you know, for the pediatric resident or the general practitioner to know what you know, you know, know when you are out of your scope and what you've seen and what you're comfortable with. I think that I can't emphasize that enough in probably any practice of medicine. If it's not something you've seen before and you're just not sure, then ask. So I think that, you know, know what you know and know when to ask and when you're kind of outside of your comfort zone. In terms of pediatric arrhythmias, I would say um, that the majority of arrhythmias are benign, but we certainly don't want to miss the potential malignant arrhythmias. And so a very detailed history, um, including family history, social history, like we talked about, is really important, um, as well as any specific episodes related to, or excuse me, symptoms related to the episodes like we've talked about. So I think it's take a good history, um, know what you know, and when you're outside of your comfort zone. And I think use your colleagues, you know, in this era when healthcare costs are really high, a phone call is is fairly free, you know, so I would say use your colleagues um, and uh, and it's and don't don't worry about asking questions to help guide your management. That's so helpful. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. Um, And then aside from National Geographic and portable EKGs, which our billers might not like, anything else that you'd like to plug um, for our listeners regarding uh, arrhythmias or life as a as a electrophysiologist in general. <laughs> yeah, I think like maybe not necessarily life as an electrophysiologist, but life as a physician, right? So I think, you know, we have a lot of trainees and people earlier in their career and I would say don't let work control you. So for all of our trainees and people earn the earlier in the career work is not supposed to control you. You have to make sure you keep a good work-life balance um, so that you can take good care of patients. Love that. I am always here to plug the work-life balance. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, This was was so wonderful, Anna. Thank you so much for your time. I think this would be a really awesome episode. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thank you to our producers for this episode, Dr. Lauren Lettingham and Dr. Beck Coulter, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Lauren Lettingham. And I've been Beck Coulter. Thank you and have a very good night. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team.
Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.